Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Kurt, great to see you. And hello to our listeners and viewers. It's, uh, it's great you all could join us. Back at you, Rich. Thank you. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Ben Bland, Director of the Southeast Asia Program at the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia. He joins us now from Down Under. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks for being with us. And uh, we're excited. You're publishing a, a new book on Indonesian President Joko Widodo called Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia, which is great. Couldn't be more timely. It's, it's unique. This is the first English language biography of the Indonesian leader, also known as Jokowi. And so we want to talk about that. Uh, just a very short introduction prior to your time at the Lowy Institute. Ben was an award-winning foreign correspondent for the Financial Times with postings throughout Asia in Hanoi, Hong Kong, Jakarta. Ben, really terrific. Thanks for being with us. We know it's late in, there in Australia. Yeah, great to have a chance to talk with you guys. Thank you, Ben. So first of all, Jokowi, you know, for Americans, helped set the scene for us. You know, Indonesia is one of the most important countries in the world. I often say to people when we're talking about Asia, if you had to rank countries that were important to the world and to the United States, the United States was not aware of their importance. Indonesia would be pretty much at the top of that list. Set the scene for us, Ben, a little bit about Indonesia and about Jokowi as a leader, please. Well, I think underestimating or failing to understand Indonesia's importance is not a uniquely American trend. There are plenty of people here in Australia where it's one of our most important neighbours who don't know where Indonesia is, who don't know that Bali is part of Indonesia. So there is a global challenge there. Indonesia was famously by one tycoon called the world's biggest invisible object. Um, and my, my book is a very small effort to try and shed some light on both the importance of Indonesia in the world and I think the importance of Jokowi, President Joko Widodo, as a global leader. I mean, Jokowi himself has a fascinating backstory. He probably rose from nowhere faster than you know, many other world leaders. He was initially born to a relatively humble family. He started a small furniture manufacturing business, exporting wooden furniture all around the world. Um, and then in the early phase of Indonesia's democratization, after the fall of the long ruling autocrat Suharto in the late 1990s, Jokowi ran in the early elections, won election as a mayor, then governor of Jakarta, and then made his way to the presidency in 2014. So it's quite a remarkable story of someone who came from nowhere, riding this wave of democratization, if you like, in Indonesia. But six years into his rule, things haven't been plain sailing, and particularly on the democracy front and on, on many other issues. But a remarkable backstory, and I think it speaks to the promise of democracy in Indonesia. It is you know, the world's third biggest democracy after India and, and the US. And the fact that you can have this guy come from nowhere to the top is testament to you know, the potential of Indonesian democracy, given how in the past the political parties and the presidency has been dominated by elite political families, figures from the, the military and elite religious backgrounds too. Can I spin just real quickly on that? So I, 
have had the good fortune of engaging uh, with Australia and Indonesia for, for some time now, met most of those leaders and spent quite a bit of time with many of them, both old families and military leaders, as you suggest. I, I think it's fair to say that for most of them, there were qualities that their appeal in many respects was understandable or translatable to an American context, just to, just to be blunt. I've met Jacoby on a number of occasions. He seems a little bit shy, sometimes withdrawn around at least outsiders, people he doesn't know very well, careful, almost furtive. And so it's not clear sometimes to Americans who have a chance to meet with him in a diplomatic setting, some of the qualities that basically catapulted him to prominence in the way that you've just described. I wonder if you could kind of explain what is it about him that has been so appealing to the Indonesian public? Well, I think Jokowi himself put it best some years back when he was running for election in Jakarta, when he talked about having the face of someone from the village and the brain of an international businessman. So I think it was that combination, the fact, the face of someone from the village, he's reflecting on his humble background, but the fact that he talks, acts like an ordinary Indonesian. I think uh, it was said of uh, George W. Bush, that he was the guy who people wanted to have a beer with. Jokowi is the guy that Indonesians want to have a bowl of noodles with. He has that kind of natural affinity with people and probably like George W. and others, he knows how to play that up, even you know, exaggerate his humble roots, exaggerate his man of the people style to really connect. So I think that's the first thing. Um, I think the second thing was really his background in business in the sense that he had this backstory of someone who came from from nowhere really and could make it to the top that was appealing as well as the fact that he was a clean leader in a time when democracy was new in Indonesia there had been a lot of um, early elected leaders but many of them had turned out to be pretty corrupt pretty ineffective and Jokowi had a track record in the early days of being personally clean and working really hard to listen to voters so I think it's that combination with his, his successful backstory made him very appealing, but it's really set against this cast of characters I mentioned from elite families in the military, who I think Indonesians had become quite frustrated with. So Jokowi was able to present himself as this outsider who people hoped would shake up the system. Now, um, he wasn't actually as much of a reformer or a revolutionary as some people hoped, but it was that sense that he embodied change. And that's why I talk about remaking Indonesia in the book title, because it's this promise of Indonesia becoming a wealthier country uh, with more social equality, better healthcare, respected on the world stage. He embodied that promise, if you like. I just have one question then over to Rich, one last. So the interesting thing sometimes about Indonesian politics is that it feels a little bit like governments represent sort of you know, composite teams from a variety of different, both regional and party backgrounds and the like. The person that's always been sort of interestingly linked to uh, Jokowi, particularly in the early days, was the relationship between him and Megawati, um, uh, another former leader and the daughter of, of one of Indonesia's great leaders. A lot of people think that there's an extremely complex relationship behind the scenes. You know, they 
love to use these metaphors of the puppet master and the like in Indonesian politics. At least early on, there was a sense that she played that role a little bit with him. Describe that to our listeners and watchers about sort of that relationship and how these composite teams come to play a role. I mean, it's almost like they fight an election, someone wins, and then they bring elements of the people that you've defeated into the government itself. Yeah, it's quite fascinating because Indonesia has a presidential system like like the US, and then it has a parliamentary system in a sense as well. Uh, And the two are sometimes very aligned, sometimes not aligned. But whatever the constellation of political parties um, that backs and doesn't back the president, you tend to find the same levels of infighting. So it's very hard to understand the makeup of the Indonesian parliament and how it relates to politics at large. Some people have talked about a political cartel, if you like, in Indonesia, when, as you you suggested, whoever wins, most of the political parties tend to fall behind the president in the hope of getting jobs, of getting favours, ability to, to raise money. Obviously, corruption is a big, big problem in Indonesian politics. And I think Jokowi and Megawati a a really important part of that story. But I think there's a third um, element in what I call in the book a love-hate triangle, which is Jokowi, Megawati, but also Prabowo Subianto, who's now the defense minister, but formerly back in the day was a vice president, failed vice presidential candidate with Megawati. He was quite close to Megawati. And they both backed Jokowi uh, in the Jakarta gubernatorial race, which really made Jokowi into a national figure. And they both hoped that by backing Jokowi, they could use him to launder their own reputations, if you like. But then Jokowi pipped them both to the post of presidency. Then he fought these two bitterly contested elections against Prabowo in 2014 and 2019. And then somehow they united, they kissed and made up. And Jokowi brought Prabowo back in as defense minister. And now people are talking about Prabowo as a candidate for presidency the next time possibly even with Megawati's daughter. So these are really strange relationships where you can be bitterly opposed to someone for eight years, then you can make up and work together with them. And there's a really delicate dance between Jokowi and Megawati in particular, also with Prabowo, where people are trying to carve up cabinet seats, they're trying to carve up other jobs in state-owned enterprises that are quite lucrative and find a balance to keep power. And Jokowi's been quite good at doing that at a sort of day-to-day level. But the question is, what's the price of this kind of cartelization or this transactional politics? Because it often leads to almost complete policy deadlock. Because while you can get parties and figures to back you in theory, so they get benefits, it's very hard to get them to align with your policies. These aren't coalitions of ideology or political programs. They're just coalitions of narrow, often financial interests. Hey, Ben. So thank you for that great explanation. So we're now six years into Jokowi's term as as presidency, second term now. Give us a sense of how he's doing. I get a sense from your book that this is really a tale of two different stories. and, And this story may be taking a bit of a more difficult turn. If you could say a little bit about him. And then secondly, just about Indonesia's ambitions generally, either in Asia or globally, again, for Americans who may not follow it so closely. 
As I said earlier, that Jacoby was elected amid great promise, amid great hopes that he would turbocharge the economy. He's really an economy first president. And I think that's a reflection of his background as a furniture exporter. So he wanted to boost economic growth, extend healthcare and education to the many tens of millions of poor Indonesians who weren't getting access to these services. And he also promised to really open up the Indonesian economy to, to international business, obviously US investors were a key target of his. Um, so there was a lot of promise in the early days, but he soon ran up against the realities of doing politics in Indonesia, that it's extremely difficult to fight your way through these elite political coalitions But more than that, Indonesia is one of the most decentralized countries in the world. There are 550 elected provincial governors, uh, mayors, etc., all mini Jokowis uh, with their own kind of views of the world, their own sort of stubborn desire to protect their local fiefdoms. So he's found it extremely hard going, dealing with the local rulers, dealing with the elite politics, dealing with all the different ministries. So it's been very difficult to get the change through. And I think what we've also seen is that Jokowi again, given his background, he's very focused on tactics on the day-to-day. He doesn't have much of a strategy for how to change the systemic functioning of the Indonesian political system to make sure it's more aligned with the things he wants to achieve. So it's been very slow going, I think. And there's been quite a lot of frustration on the pace of economic reform, even before the COVID-19 crisis hit, which has dealt a heavy blow to the economy. There's also been frustration with what some have called Jokowi's authoritarian turn, that under his government in the last few years, while Indonesia remains an electoral democracy, there seems to be more and more attempts to use the law enforcement agencies to go against government critics. Uh, That's concerning as well. But I think what I argue in the book is that these aren't just Jokowi's personal failings, but they reflect his inability to tackle these fundamental contradictions that go back to Indonesia's founding 75 years ago, these tensions between democracy and authoritarianism, between the need for foreign capital and know-how, and Indonesia's protectionist instincts, which really stem, I think, from uh, frustrations and the pain of Dutch colonial exploitation. So liberalism in in Indonesia is really a dirty word because it's seen as being cover for for imperialism. Wow, we, we see this kind of story playing out, of course, across Asia. But the other story we see playing out is this battle with influence in the region between kind of the Western order, American-led, and the, and the Chinese influence. And you write in your book about the kind of massive investment that China is making into Indonesia. I wonder if you can just give us a sense of, you know, we tend to look at it here as a simple contest, you know, and it's a much more complicated situation on the ground. It's not just a contest between the, the West and China. Indonesia has its own interests here. How how is that playing out? Well, as I said, Jokowi is really an economy first president. He's not very interested in great power politics. I don't think he's attended a single UN General Assembly in his first five or six years in office. He only goes to those forums like the G20 and APEC, where there's an economic angle, and he thinks he can get cash. And at the end of the day, he's he's not interested in US-China competition. He's interested in who has the most investment cash to offer with the fewest conditions. And obviously, in the last few years, that's been in many cases China, 
But we have also seen, obviously, Japan, South Korea coming in. And there's obviously a very big stock of U.S. investment from the past. And there have been ongoing increases in U.S. investment, too. So he, he takes a very functional, practical view of this question. And I know in, in, in Washington and in Canberra, too, there's often an attempt to sort of frame the shared democratic values with Indonesia. And obviously, Indonesia Despite these authoritarian tendencies, the government is proud of being an electoral democracy. Indonesians cherish their right to choose their leaders. But I think in many important ways, there are shared values with China, too. The belief in you know, excluding foreign interference at all costs, given Indonesia's um, history of you know, U.S. interference and interference from, from others. I think that's important to Indonesia, this principle of, of non-interference, but also China's focus on economic rights over individual human rights. I think that appeals to, to Indonesia. I mean, in, in the book, I tell this story last year of um, Jokowi's chief of staff, a guy called Moldoko, who's a former head of the Indonesian military, going in for a meeting with the Chinese ambassador to Indonesia. Uh, and they discussed the, the issue of the Uyghurs, the repression of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. But rather than expressing solidarity with his fellow Uyghur Muslims, he expressed solidarity with the Chinese government for also being a victim of hoax attacks. So the implication being, you know, China, like Indonesia, is a victim of these lies spread on the internet, probably by Westerners, um, about, you know, the terrible things that China does in Xinjiang. I guess the implication in Indonesia was that this was about criticism of Indonesia's human rights record in Papua. So I think we can't presume that their democratic values are quite the same as ours. And there are certainly overlapping values with China, as well as a lot of overlapping interests. So it's a really complicated picture. And I think one, one problem is the more that the US, in particular, Australia, to a lesser extent, frames engagement with Indonesia and other Southeast Asian nations only through the lens of US-China competition, the more it's in a way going to push them away. And I think that's a bit of a problem we have to be very careful about. Really important point. And can I ask you, just when you compare Jokowi with uh, Indonesia's previous leader, Indonesia during most of the sort of mid to late, you know, 2000s into the teens, played a leadership role in many respects in ASEAN, you know, kind of corralled the other nations, made sure consensus played a role, helped drive the institution towards more you know, larger venues in which the United States and China was involved. I think people sometimes suggest that, as you've indicated, under Jokowi, Indonesia is less ambitious about the role that it plays internationally. It's interested in its domestic development, but it's not playing the same sort of leadership role in ASEAN. And as a result, ASEAN, in many respects, that some people believe has essentially lost some momentum and direction. Would you agree with that generally? And if that is the case, why has he not chosen to play this, you know, subtle, traditionally important leadership role in ASEAN? Oftentimes, you know, when we talk about this oftentimes with Singapore behind the scenes, but still they're not playing that role hardly at all. I think this is a, really a case of the leader setting the tone and the Jokowi's predecessor, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, or SBY, was very 
focused on Indonesia's international role. He was a former general. He spoke really good English. You know, he had ambitions personally on the international stage. Jokowi is a very different kind of leader. As you were alluding to earlier, he speaks English in international fora sometimes, but he's not that confident in it. He's not a great traveler, generally speaking. But I think we can go back to one of his first visits in 2014 after he was elected when he went to the East Asia Summit in Naypyidaw. And this was his sort of debut really on, on, on the global stage. And on, on the plane back, um, he was asked about his foreign policy by some Indonesian journalists. And um, they mentioned SBY's previous stance. He, he talked about a thousand friends and no enemies or a million friends and no enemies if he was feeling particularly friendly. And Jokowi said, well, what's the point of having all these friends unless we get benefits? So he's really about the friends with benefits. And I don't think he feels that Indonesia standing up on regional issues is likely to bring it many benefits. It really puts it in the targets, potentially of China, of the US, of others. There's a lot of risk, but minimal reward. So he's a very practical leader on this front. And that's why I think he's he's retreated. I think when he went to the first few ASEAN meetings, he was he said to people, what's the point of sitting around and, and reading out these pre-prepared statements? He couldn't quite get the point of it. He prefers the more informal, personal touch, I think. So that there's an issue there of his leadership. I, I think we should say, to be fair, he did appoint initially a foreign minister, Retno Marsudi, who was relatively lower profile compared to her predecessors. But she has grown in the role. And I think she's made more of an effort to try and push Indonesia's leadership out there. But I think it's hard without the backing of the president, frankly speaking. Hey ben, this, this is going to be a really important book and, and a timely book. But I, if it's okay, I want to go back to your first book, which you wrote three years ago, and just maybe shift subjects a bit. And this book was called Generation HK, Seeking Identity in China's Shadow, which was about the growing tensions between China and, and Hong Kong. Couldn't you know, have been more important study at that particular time. You've been writing a lot about this. You've been speaking a lot about this. I, I looked at your last piece where you said Hong Kong is not dead, just entering a new phase of struggle. Give us a sense from where you are in, in Australia and given your experience, where are we now in Hong Kong? Well, I wrote that piece because I was frustrated and I think a lot of my friends in Hong Kong were frustrated with the people keep it on saying that Hong Kong is dead. There have been so many columns, so many commentators saying Hong Kong is dead because of China's latest moves to unilaterally enforce this national security law, which really does tear up the idea that Hong Kong has any autonomy and deals a really big blow to Hong Kongers freedoms and Hong Kong's independent legal system, which really underpinned its success as a global financial center. But I don't think that means Hong Kong is dead. There's still 7 million people living there and about half to 60% of them are supporters of the democracy movement. And people are fighting on to defend their freedoms and their home at great risk and great costs quite possibly to themselves. So I just wanted to give people a sense that, um, you know, you can't just say Hong Kong's dead, wring your hands of it and look the other way, because there's a long struggle ahead. And I think that people in the democracy movement in Hong Kong 
always understood that, that Xi Jinping was unlikely to grant Hong Kong democracy just because they staged another protest. I think they always understood this was a long struggle to keep the flame of resistance alive and not obey before they have to, if you like, to try and keep this resistance movement going until something someday changes in, in Beijing. So I think that's still where we, we are in a sense. In terms of the geopolitics of it all, uh, finally, you know, we're really seeing Hong Kong's position be exposed in a way before it profited as this connector between the US and China, the West and China more generally. And now because of the greater tensions between the US and China chiefly, but, but more broadly with the Western world, it's now finding itself on the front line of the conflict, really. So it's going from being in this sweet spot to being in the danger zone. And you know, I think a lot of companies that operate in Hong Kong, both Chinese and Western, are now feeling that, as well as Hong Kongers themselves, who are really in an extremely difficult place. So it's quite a tense time, uh, and there's probably more pressure to come from Beijing. But I suspect there's a lot of fight yet in Hong Kongers, despite the odds really being against them. Hey, Bennett, we would be remiss. We're, we're sitting here, you know, a couple of months from an American election. Lots riding on that. I'm curious. It's very hard for us sometimes to see how friends in other places see what's going on in the United States. So you're obviously in a, you know, kind of an elite city, an elite institution in an elite city um, at the Lowy Institute. What, how do you view what's going on and your colleagues and friends? How do you view what's going on in the United States? One of the perennial debates is not only about, you know, the quality and nature of American democracy, but whether in fact we're witnessing, you know, the beginning stages of American decline. Give us a sense, uh, an honest sense of how you think these debates and perceptions are playing out on the Australian scene right now. I think there's a lot of hope here, as there probably is in, in other parts of the world, and certainly among you know, a large section of US voters that you know, things are looking bad for the Trump administration. And there's a hope that that could be not necessarily a snap back to the status quo ante, but some sort of period of, of healing, if you like, uh, in relations between the US and the rest of the world, which I think would definitely be welcomed in Australia for the most part. But it's complicated. Obviously, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has a relatively good relationship with President Donald Trump. But I think the government here is pragmatic enough to work with whoever wins, as obviously true of, of governments everywhere all around the world. But the, the bigger question, I think, is, yeah, is President Trump more the cause of the problems, or is he the symptom, of, as you're alluding to, this turning inwards, a maturing of you know America's place in the world and potentially a withdrawal? And I think the jury's out there from the outside. No one really knows how things are going to go. There, there are a lot of um, question marks. And I think the other interesting question for me that not a lot of people are thinking about is, is is the Biden administration necessarily better for relations with, with Southeast Asia, for example, because that could mean much more demanding U.S. government. On the one hand, I think Southeast Asian governments would like to see the U.S. president turning up to the East Asia summit in these key fora. Uh, but if you were to have a more coordinated, targeted U.S. strategy on China that was trying to bring allies and friends along, that also means more demands in a way on the likes of Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam to coordinate action 
actions to balance out against China. And I'm not sure how comfortable they'll be with that situation, frankly. Ben, I, I actually just wanted to talk about the COVID situation briefly in Australia, because when we look around the world and when we look at Asia, you know, Australia kind of emerges as this country that got its hands around the pandemic quickly. You have about 25,000 cases over just over 500 dead, which is obviously tragic, but just pales in comparison to what we've experienced in the United States. I just wonder if you could say a little bit about what the experience was like. Do people feel like it was handled properly? And, and you know, have you, have you turned the corner on the pandemic? I think it's clear that Australia, by and large, has done a really good job compared to to most other countries in the world, certainly compared to to the US, to to a lot of European countries, uh, to Indonesia and and many other neighbours. But I think Australia also has benefited from the fact that it's so far away from from everywhere else. It's an island continent uh, surrounded by fish and, you know, there's a history of tight border control in Australia. The Australian government moved pretty early to slap international travel bans on many countries. And I think that helped get things under control. There has been a resurgence uh, in the state of Victoria and in, in the city of Melbourne in particular, but that now seems to be brought under control. But that's come at the cost of quite tough restrictions. So uh, at the moment, Australians and permanent residents are banned from leaving the country. There's almost no inward travel allowed. Even Australians returning are restricted to, I think, several thousand a week. The government's talking about those restrictions being in place for months. And even within Australia, which is a federation, um, individual states have closed their borders to other states, particularly Victoria, which has had this second wave. Uh, And so you've really seen a kind of breakdown, in a sense, of the Commonwealth of Australia as states have exerted their sort of semi-sovereign rights to close their own borders. And there's been some frictions there, but by and large, it's been pretty well managed. The challenge now is how do you come out of this, right? In my, my friends back home in, in the UK and in Europe have all been heading off on their summer holidays. And in a way, while it hasn't been handled well, most of the countries of Europe are at a similar level uh, of COVID-19 spread. And so they feel confident opening up. But in Australia, because they've done such a good job sealing themselves off, it's going to be very difficult to open yourself back up. But without that, tourism industry is going to suffer, investment is going to suffer, and also diplomacy and connections. Australia's own efforts to engage more with Southeast Asia are going to be very difficult if you're saying to Indonesia and the like, sorry, we can't open our doors to you because the pandemic is is spreading too much. So I think it's it's an interesting problem that Australia and and neighbouring New Zealand are in now as well, where they've done such a good job. It's very hard before there being some sort of universal vaccine to envisage how they can easily open up to the rest of the world again. Man, that's terrific. Just excellent uh, answers. We're so grateful for you joining us today. We're excited about your book publication, and uh, we wish you the best. And hopefully uh, you get through the coronavirus, that your optimism about the United States is rewarded, and people all come to know Indonesia a little bit better. Rich? Yeah. Ben, thank you. Uh, Tell us the name of the book again, when it comes out, and, and where people can get it. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Rich and Kurt. Really uh, privileged to have this chance to, to talk to you both. It's been really interesting. So the book is Man of Contradictions, Joko Widodo and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia. It's published on the 1st of September. It's available on Amazon and should be in US bookstores later in the year. But the, the ebook will be available from the 1st of September. And yeah, thank, thanks again, guys, for having me on. It's been really fascinating conversation and great to try and uh, share my love for Indonesia. That's great. Well, Ben, congratulations. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And again, I'd like to mention that you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Ben online on our website at theasiagroup.com. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.